In this second show, with the neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, we look at the implications of her revolutionary theory of constructed emotions on emotional intelligence and leadership. Hey friends, welcome back to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, along with my friend and co-host and number one student, John Gomes. Thank you, Scott. How are you, how are you feeling today? You keep, you keep me hanging as to what you're actually going to say each time. So I never how, know what I'm going to say. <laughs> how are you feeling today? Well, uh, my brain is currently making a series of predictions based on my body budget and our past experiences with our brilliant guest, which is causing me to feel tremendous gratitude because today, Lisa Feldman Barrett has graciously agreed to return to our show to continue our conversation from last time. You'll remember, of course, John, that last time uh, our conversation was so rich and so challenging and so full of insights uh, that the entire hour just passed us by and we didn't get to ask all of our questions. So she immediately said, well, I'll come back and, and have some more. So uh, thank you for doing that, Lisa, and welcome back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, no, we we're very grateful. I mean, Scott had to um, lie down in a dark room for 48 hours to recover from the last time. Yeah. The intellectual workout well, was so much yeah. for him. Fetal position. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't uh, heard part one, let me just encourage you to stop this episode right now. Go back and listen to that because this is not a topic that you can try to play catch up on. Um, she's been upending our thinking through her writing and our conversation with her in good ways. Um, and, and so I encourage you to stop and, and go back and listen. So, uh, Lisa, you know, incidentally, ever since our, our conversation last time, I, I this is going to sound silly. We can edit this out if it's, if it's ridiculous, but I can't look at emojis the same way. We live in an emoji world and people will text me and they'll send me an emoji. And I'm like, well, now I think I know what that's supposed to mean, but there's no universal expression of emotion. So maybe I don't know what that means. That's good. Actually, you should not edit that out. We did a study with emojis and we showed exactly uh, what you just, uh, what you just, what you just described experiencing. Oh, really? Yeah. We don't just experience uh, we're, our brains aren't just guessing what facial movements mean on real faces. They're also guessing what emojis mean. And the studies that we did with emojis came out really exactly the way that we hypothesized um, based on our work and other people's work on, on how brains, you know, infer emotional meaning in, in faces. So, Lisa, last time we had a fascinating conversation about your theory, which upends the conventions of the classical understanding of what emotions are, how they're made, how to, how we can possibly read them or not. And I, I suppose the, the, the focus of this conversation we'd love to have with you, are what are the implications on those sacred cows, all the things that we've taken for granted as being truisms in psychology, in emotional intelligence, maybe even leadership development, that there's a whole multi-billion dollar industry out there saying these things, which to be honest, aren't necessarily as as uh, as reliable um, as we might have thought uh, a few years ago. So we wanted to just kind of dig into that a little bit and see what your thoughts are. Let's start with a, a kind of a really big question, which is what's the difference between, you know, a healthy and an unhealthy emotion? You know, because we're told the whole time that there are healthy and unhealthy emotional responses in situations. And you know, how does how does your theory look at that? Well, I think that it's really not possible to talk about any instance of emotion in the abstract without referring to the person who is constructing it and the situation in which it's occurring. 
So I don't really think you can say that in general, there are healthy or unhealthy emotions. So for example, the way that the meaning of shame, for example, in a Western culture can sometimes be, you know, healthy and useful and sometimes not. And um, in certain Eastern cultures, shame is a very healthy emotion to have. So the instances of emotion that are linked to illness in, in the U.S. and in Western countries don't necessarily translate into illness in other countries. And so I think it's all about the context. Think about what your brain is doing. Your brain is making predictions. These predictions are not just kind of abstract guesses. Your brain is actually predicting what you need to do next and what you will see next and what you will hear next and what you will feel next as a way of efficiently controlling your actions. And sometimes when your brain is making these predictions, it's constructing an emotion to make sense of what's going on inside your body in relation to what's going on around you in the world. And so there are times when anger can be really healthy and there are times when it can be really unhealthy. There are times when you know, anger is a really good fit to the situation that will allow you to behave in a way that is really effective. And there are times when it isn't. And there are times when it is, but its expression um, is, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, in each emotion is not really a thing. It's a category of things, a population of variable things. So if I'm in a faculty meeting and someone, and I become angry at someone, there are useful ways of expressing that anger and there are not very useful, they're very unhelpful and unuseful ways of expressing that anger. So an emotion can be, you know, healthful or unhealthful, good or bad, depending on the way that you express it in, uh, in a particular situation. So I just, I just don't think it's a answerable question. I kind of think it's the wrong question to be asking actually. Exactly. And I think this is, you know, this is really interesting in that, there are a lot of questions that are actually the wrong. I mean, we asked you a lot of questions where you said exactly the same thing to us last time. It's the wrong question to be asking. And, and we really want you to tell us that because, you know, it's the wrong starting point. So another, I've got one more, um, because it's, it's on my mind, um, which is the, the kind of classical view of the fight or flight response, which is probably the most powerful experience that we will have that validates this idea of signature emotions and hardwired responses and external stimulus triggering something. It's very difficult um, to break out of, of that um, mental model because it's such a powerful emotional response. And so I'm just wondering, how, does, how do we think about um, the kind of triggered fight or flight response, which produces this very consistent physical um, and emotional uh, reaction in us uh, as not being hardwired? Well, I think um, there's so much to unpack in what you just said that we're going to have to take one thing at a time here. Yeah. So first of all, nothing is hardwired in the sense that even, even a reflex, like the patellar reflex when, when somebody you know, hits your patellar tendon and your knee, your leg kind of kicks up a little. I mean, even, even a reflex like that is not, you wouldn't say it's exactly hardwired in the sense that when the response is executed, it's always identical no matter what the context is, because that's just not true. For example, um, when an animal freezes or an animal um, runs away in the face of a threat, the way that the animal runs is not the same. Whether If it's 
an area that the animal's been in before versus not been in before, if how much, you know, glucose, uh, when's the last time the animal ate, how much did the animal sleep, is, the, is it grassy, is it bumpy, is it sandy? The, the, the point is that what looks to us like exactly the same response is not exactly the same response under the hood. It's actually, a po- there are a population of, of responses that the animal can give that we're just ignoring or we can't see with the naked eye all the little variants. So that's the first thing to say is that even re- what we think of as reflexes, evidence from behavioral ecology and ethology, comparative neuroscience shows us are not identical. If I have a glass in my hand and I reach out, let's say I have a glass in front of me and I wanna drink what's in the um, glass, I reach out and I grab the glass and let's say I do that three times. There's no guarantee that the neurons that made that happen those three times are identical, even though the action to our eye looks identical. So I think that's the first thing to really understand. And when you're really trying to understand the brain and you're trying to understand small biological changes that can have meaningful behavioral effects, you really have to understand that neurons are not wired together in the sense that they're soldered together. There are thousands of neurons that speak to a single neuron and a single neuron speaks to thousands of neurons. And so these, these kind of like isolated little circuits just don't exist in the brain for very many things. They do exist for some things, but not for very, not for very many. So that's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that we do have, we could call them programs or like collections of circuits, let's say, that um, can be executed quickly when the brain per- believes that, that, that its life is in danger. So what is, that, what is happening in a predicting brain? Because like, all brains really are structured to be predictive. So how does that work exactly? And so the way it works is, is kind of like this. The brain, we could be talking about a human brain or we could be talking about a mouse brain. It doesn't really matter here. The brain is gonna make a set of motor predictions. So if we were to stop the world right now, just freeze it, your brain right now is, has some internal representation, some kind of model of it's firing in some pattern to capture what is going on around in the world, the sensory uh, data from the world and the sensory data from the body. So it's mo- it has a model of what the world looks like and sounds like and smells like and what is going on inside your own body. And based on that, your brain is launching predictions about what's going to happen next. Typically what happens is the predictions are first, what, what do I need to change inside the body in order to support movement? What movement am I going to make? Then based on that, the brain is predicting, well, the last time I moved, last time my body was in this state and I moved in this way, what did I see? What did I hear? What did I feel? And then as the brain is making these predictions, information is actually coming in from the world and from the body. And that information will either, if it matches the prediction, then the motor responses are executed. And so to you, it feels like you're just reacting, but actually your brain has been preparing the, the actions, um, you know, several hundred milliseconds before you actually execute them. If the information doesn't match, then your brain has the option to to learn that new information, to take in whatever the non-matching information is, which we call prediction error, so that it can change its prediction and actually predict better next time, or it can go with its own model. Um, And there are reasons why a brain might, you know, missee or mishear that that is not taking the prediction error. 
So what is a reflex? A reflex is where the brain prepares the prediction and doesn't wait for the incoming information to check against because it's predicting that your life is in danger. So it's just going to execute the response and not worry about like what happens next. It's just the circumstances are dire enough that it's just going to execute the response without wait, without checking. And that's, that's one way to think about what a reflex is. That doesn't mean though, that the reflex is context insensitive. It doesn't mean that it's stereotyped in any way, because remember your every brain is making a prediction based on the context it's currently in. So this explains how something can be look reflexive, but still be very, very contextually sensitive. And we can see that in animals that are hours old, like a larval zebra fish, for example, has three or four different escape behaviors that it can perform based on context. This animal hasn't really had very much time to learn, but it has, I mean, it's only been alive for a few hours, but it has several different actions that it can execute in an emergency, not one. So when it flees, basically, um, it doesn't have a single flea behavior. It has multiple flea behaviors. And this is like a tiny little, tiny little nervous system uh, without much learning. So it's always contextual. And I guess the final thing to say here is that if you run up a flight of stairs, your heart beats against your chest and you can feel your heart beating. If you drink too much coffee, you know, you can feel your heart raising. You feel kind of very, you know, kind of activated. If your brain is preparing you for a fight or flight response, as you would say, it's also preparing you to feel the sensory consequences of those. And you could just experience that as high arousal unpleasant high arousal, but you don't because your brain has been wired full of emotion concepts. And so you make sense of that high arousal, unpleasant feeling as fear or as anger, but it's a very automatic thing. You, you don't have to make sense of it that way. And if your brain doesn't make sense of it that way, your brain will behave differently and your actions will be different. So for example, when an animal attacks another animal, so let's say an animal is um, faced with a predator. The first, if an, when an animal is faced with a predator, like say a rat or any kind of mammal is faced with a predator, usually it will run away if it can. If the, if the predator is too close, the animal will attack. Is that fear? Is that anger? What is it? Well, that's, that's humans making meaning out of what that animal is doing. Mm. The animal is pr- clearly protecting itself, but is that protection anger? Is it fear? That, you know, so it's not that we're hardwired to make emotions. We definitely have assemblies of neurons, collections of circuits, if you will, to engage in protective maneuvers um, that we don't deliberate about. It, that's absolutely true. But there aren't emotions per se. In our culture, we make sense of them as emotions um, because that's what we've learned to do. When there's an intense change in the body, you have um, an, in- an intense change in your mood or your what we call affective feelings. You feel pleasant, you feel unpleasant, you feel worked up, you feel calm. And we make sense of those usually as emotions. Mm, that That's really helpful. And again, you're pulling apart this distinction between affect your body budget sensation from emotion. I think that's where it's easy to go wrong in this 
in this instance of 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 the conversation so that's really helpful i mean i it sounds kind of crazy until you actually start using it in your everyday life so i was in new zealand um right before the pandemic hit and things were really starting to heat up and my daughter got on a plane to meet me in new zealand for spring break which is a tradition that we've had really since she's been in high school and I, you know, I called my husband and I said, I'm, I'm feeling really uncertain and I have really high arousal and I'm, it feels really uncomfortable. Now, I, if I was a normal person, I probably would have said, I'm really, really afraid. But that would invoke a whole set of predictions for behavior that I really didn't need right then. And so it was just better for me to just describe more, um, more generally what the feeling was. Sometimes it's not helpful. Sometimes when you feel like shit, you need to make sense of it to know what to do. You, you need to know, do I need to sleep? Do I need a hug from a friend? Do I need to go talk to my boss? Like, what do I need to do here? And that's when it's very helpful to make an emotion because emotions are prescriptions for action. They're the way that you're, one way that your brain is making sense of what's going on inside your own body in relation to what's going on around you in the world. Hi, producer Phil here. If you're enjoying the Evolving Leader podcast, then please do subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram so you catch all future episodes. Now, let's get back to the show. So, on the topic of emotional self-awareness, so I... It makes perfect sense to me that there aren't healthy or unhealthy emotions or good or bad emotions, that all emotions, in a sense, are information, right? In the emotional intelligence work that I do, oftentimes the difference between healthy and unhealthy expression of emotion is correlated to the degree that one understands the emotions that they're experiencing. Oftentimes I experience people that don't recognize their behavior on others or on their team or the the culture and climates that they're creating. It's not because of intention. It's not, you know, they have no malice. There's nothing like that if it's a negative environment that they're creating. It's it's honestly behaviors that are born out of, you know, what I would say is, you know, a lack of self-awareness, right? Well, a lot of people would describe it that way, of course, but an emotional lack of awareness. Like, I don't know what's going on inside of me and I'm acting in reactivity without stopping to process and analyze. I'd really love to hear you how your research is, is informed sure. that. Sure. So, I mean, there's a there's sort of a more general point to make, and um, then there's the more specific points to make about what to do about it. So I'll make the more general point first, which is that why do brains predict? Brains predict because it's the most metabolically efficient way to run a body. And it turns out that metabolic efficiency is like really important in evolution, and it's actually really important in your own health. So every time you needlessly spend um, resources, that is your brain you know, gets you ready for a big metabolic outlay that you don't need, that would be called stress. And you, you either don't expend that, that um, energy, or you do, but you don't replenish the energy spent, you pay a little tax. Mm. And that tax, it's a little tax, little. That tax adds up over time. And it might take five years, it might take 10 years, it might take 20 years. But eventually, you are more susceptible to developing metabolic illness, like heart disease, or Mm. certain types of cancer, or diabetes, or depression, or Alzheimer's disease. So all of which have a metabolic component. 
And when I say they have a metabolic component, I'm not saying they are caught, we can reduce everything to metabolism, right? Because that's just the wrong way to think about illness. You know, the way we think about illness is that there are multiple weak interacting causes and they all work together to produce an illness. So metabolism is kind of the uh, overlooked piece in, with a lot, of, um, a lot of illnesses, not diabetes, obviously, but other illnesses which don't appear to have anything to do with metabolism, but they do. So what is communication between people good for? Well, if I make myself predictable to you, then you become predictable to me. And then my interactions with you are much more metabolically efficient. And that's a good thing. That's what you want. That's why we have norms and, and rules in society. That's why we have rules that we all follow. Like right now, you know, nobody is picking their nose. Nobody is dancing around naked. Nobody is, you know, swearing. Well, I mean, I do sometimes, you know, I do sometimes use salty language, but, um, and I, and it gets a laugh because it's really unexpected. So occasionally unexpected things are good. And sometimes we, we actually seek novelty, but in interactions with people, we usually want to them to be predictable to us. We want to know what we want to be able to have the, the communication for it to go smoothly means we can anticipate what they're going to say and do, and they can do the same for us. If you're not aware of your impact on people, then things are not going to go smoothly. If you are not aware of your signal value to people, then you will end up having really fraught interactions that are going to be metabolically costly for everybody. And people will dislike you or they won't trust you or that will be the consequence really, um, that they will find you difficult to interact with because they can't really predict. And they may be unaware that that's why they dislike you, but that really is a factor. So for example, um, my husband, when he concentrates really hard, gives a full facial scowl, like the stereotypic anger expression. I mean, really. And he was telling me this story when I first met him about how he had gone to see a therapist and he made this full facial scowl. The therapist asked him the question and he was like really thinking about it. And you know, he made this scowl and the therapist said, are you, why are you angry? And he said, I'm not angry. I'm thinking about what you're saying. And he said, Oh, you know, the therapist said, Oh no, you're clearly angry, but you just don't know it. <laughs> There's so much to say about that. I don't, I don't even know where to start, but um First of all, my husband left that therapist and never went back because that was a profound breach of empathic connection between, you know, that was just, dis it was an incredibly disrespectful thing to say. But um, more than that, I was realizing I do that all the time. I mean, I, I'm constantly concentrating, like when my students give a presentation, I am, and I'm like, I wonder if I'm scowling when I do, when I'm lit. So I go into my lab meeting and I say to my lab, I have 25, you know, students and postdocs, whatever. And I say to them, you know, I just learned, <laughs> I just discovered, yeah. Do I, maybe when you're presenting, I'm actually scowling and I'm actually concentrating. I'm not unhappy with what you're saying. And they're like, oh my God, really? Oh, you know, I mean, it was like this watershed moment. <laughs> and I realized that I'm a migraine sufferer. Sometimes when I have a migraine, I'm going to be a little more terse and I'm going to be, actually, it has nothing to do with anybody I'm talking to. It's just, I'm kind I'm in pain. So I just tell them, like today, uh, I didn't get very much sleep today. So if I'm a little testy, I'm try not to be. But if I'm a little testy, please don't just attribute it to me not having had sleep. Or I have a, I have a headache today. Or 
Um, you know, I'm basically letting them know if there's something in my tone, because they're, you know, they're constantly worried about how I'm evaluating them. And I'm constantly trying to get them not to be worried about that. <laughs> because it, I want them to, you know, feel free to challenge and explore and occasionally fail. And that's how they're going to do their best work, right? And so I'm basically verbally giving them cues. And now they verbally give each other cues you know, use your words is actually a useful thing even for adults, actually, frankly, when we're communicating with each other. So th that would be the first thing I would say is be aware of your own expressive vocabulary and either and consider what, you know, if people don't know you very well or if they're from other cultures or what have you, they're just going to be using stereotypes to interpret or guess at the meaning of your expressions. And so it's going to take them a while to learn about you specifically and you don't want to have things get off on the wrong foot. So try to become aware of your own signal value and try to adjust it to the extent that you can. That would be the first thing. And the second thing I would say is it's very hard for your brain to grab a hold of its own predictive capacities and kind of change them in the moment. That's, that's really hard. But what you can do, I mean, because your brain is using your past to make predictions about the future, which become your present eventually, right? So in a sense, you could say, what you're always doing is you're always cultivating your past for the purposes of who you're gonna be in the future, what you're gonna experience in the future, what you're gonna do in the future. It's really hard to reach back into your past and change it. You can try, you can go to therapy, you can, you can try, but it's much easier to try to change the present because the present is a way of cultivating the past. So you could say you're always cultivating the past. Even in this moment right now, we are cultivating our own past mm -hmm. as a way of changing who we're going to be in the future. And you can harness that to shift your emotional vocabulary, to broaden it, to, um, to change it in ways that will be productive for you so that in the future, it won't, it won't be so hard. You won't have to do it in the moment. You won't have to change things in the moment because you're basically seeding your brain to predict differently, you know, mm. in, in the future. That makes a lot of sense. What are some of the implications? I, I mean, I can infer them based on what you're saying, but for our leadership population that's listening to this right now, um, what are some of the implications that you would draw for, on, on your discoveries for the future of leadership? Um, I know it's kind of a vague question, but I'm just curious, like what, what, what might the leader take from this that's listening to this right now? Yeah. So again, I would say, I guess it depends on what kind of a leader you are, right? So there are different leadership styles. And I think the first thing is to become aware of what kind of leader are you? You know, I'm the kind of leader. I like people. I don't really want behavioral compliance. I want people to buy it. I want them to own it. I want them to really invest themselves in what I want them to do. So I don't, I want to convince, I want them to be convinced that what I want them to do is what they want to do. And um, that requires that a, a couple of things. One is that um, it requires that I do a little bit of work to support their body budgets. So I think in the past we've talked about, you know, your brain, your brain's most important job is controlling your body. And to do that, it's running a budget for your body. You have a lot of systems in your body and so your brain is running a budget. It's not budgeting money. It's budgeting glucose and salt and 
water and, you know, all of the nutrients and, and other chemicals that your body needs to keep you a, a lot to keep alive and, and healthy. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can think about your brain like, um, like the financial office of a multinational corporation, every new thing that you learn, um, and every action, every movement of your body costs something metabolically. And every breath that you take, every, everything you eat, all the sleep and so on are, are sort of like deposits in that body budget. And we are social animals. So we didn't evolve to just so that our brains run up, you know, have full responsibility for our own body budgets. We actually, you know, figuratively speaking, we make withdrawals and deposits into other people's body budgets too. So if you're a leader, you know, you will be making withdrawals and deposits into your teams or your, you know, your workers' body budgets. And research shows really clearly that the things that really keep a worker's body budget solvent definitely predict increased productivity in the workplace. Not because people are happy, but, but, but because their body budgets, they have a surplus to spend on the work that you want them to do. I mean, they are happier and they will feel better, but the feeling mm-hmm. is a side effect of what's happening about with the body budget. So if you work, for example, if you're asking your, your workers to learn something new, to be creative, to do something novel, to even to interact with each other around uh, on a team where the outcomes are uncertain for a period of time. Uncertainty is a, is a, like all of these things are really expensive things from a body budgeting standpoint, then provide body budgeting support. And that can mean work life balance. It can mean um, making sure that the temperature and the water and the light are, 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 are good for, um, for a human body. It can mean giving people a little more control over their own um, work life. It can mean, you know, supportive comments, even when you're being critical, right? So there's a way to give critical feedback while still being supportive to somebody's body budget. And we're not doing these things because, because people are weak or, or because they're snowflakes or, or whatever. We're doing it because we want to get the best out of them. And, mm. um, if you support the body budgets of your workers, those workers will give you their life. They will work for you really, really, really hard. I mean, I think mm. this, is what, this is what Henry Ford knew when he you know, made some of the innovations that he made in um, American industry, in work, you know, the American um, industrial um, mm-hmm. environment that um, produced the middle class. And a, and a terrific boom in, in American productivity. So, I mean, I think that would be one thing that I would say. And the other thing that I would say to a leader is use your own emotions, your own affective feelings and the way that your brain makes sense of them. Use them as a guide to what's going on. Like when I get angry about something, my first reaction is not to yell at someone. It's not to swear and stamp my feet. It's not, it, I stop and I think, okay, somebody just, something, somebody just blocked my goal. Somebody just violated a deeply held belief that I have. Like something just happened. What was it? So I'm basically, I'm, I'm aware of what the meaning making uh, that my brain is using. 
And I'm, when I get angry, I know, you know, one of three or four things has probably just happened. Which is it? And then I really deliberate about, in a leadership position, I deliberate about, there are no gut reactions, right? There are no like reflexes. I, I stop and I deliberate with a lot of effort and try to figure out what do I think strategically the best way is to handle this. Now you could describe that as system one and system two. You could describe that as reaction and you know reason or whatever. You can describe it in those terms, but that's not actually what's happening under the hood. What's actually happening under the hood is my brain made an automatic, it made an automatic set of predictions and created meaning. I experienced something and I use that experience as a cue and I stopped. And then I considered what the various predictions could have been. And then I try to figure out in this situation, I know what my, either my short-term goal is or my long-term goal. And so I need to figure out what's the right thing to do. And sometimes I can do it in the blink of an eye. I can do it really fast. Sometimes I can't, I need to wait. And um, that's really hard for me. You know, I'm somebody who wants to act quickly and decisively. And sometimes I need to wait 10 minutes or a half an hour or an hour or even a day, depending on what it is and what the consequences will be. And I think if you do that, you are, you're saving yourself and your workers from the chaos that ensues um, when you have a knee-jerk reaction, which is what we call it when we refer to something that is occurring like a reflex. Basically, it's occurring automatically where you know, you aren't considering all of the tr possible trajectories of, of what could happen. And as a leader, that's your job. You, you have to be able to do mental time travel. You have to figure out, well, mm. am I optimizing for the short term or the long or the intermediate or the long term goal? And, you know, so it, it sounds like it's really hard and it sounds like a lot of navel gazing. And but it's it's just a skill that you practice in like driving it. The more you practice it, the better you get at it, the faster uh, that you um, that you get at it, and and um, it's it becomes a skill like any other skill. I had an episode last week where um, the lens that you have provided to me in this thinking really paid off. So I was on a call um, with a number of people, including the the CEO of uh, one of our clients. I was leading with my chin on a point, you know, I was making a strident point that I believed in. The CEO said, "No, I don't agree with that," and. You know, I have excellent relationship with, with this client, been, you know, working with them for many years. I felt the world collapse underneath me um, briefly. And, you know, it, it would have been very easy for, for me to, in that moment, to have fallen into the, I, I need to prove my worth. I need to demonstrate that I'm not wrong. Um, and, and all I would have done was had a cascade of defensive, you know, comments or backtracking or whatever, none of which would have made me, you know, look... <laughs> <laughs> any better in that situation and what what i i did in in that moment was i separated the affect which was driving the show from the emotion which was there wasn't actually much emotion it was all effect and that was supremely valuable because i realized that the, the, there was no information here that was actionable except your body budget your, your the metabolic cost you're experiencing right now is very high i need to get that down and and it it provided a you know like the uh, perennial wisdom around not reacting and the, you know and so but it provided a completely different locus of control for me. That's brilliant. That's brilliant because here's what you did: you basically 
what you did was you forestalled the meaning making. So the, the negative affect, the negative feeling was a cue, right? Something is wrong, right? This is, there's a metabolic cost here. Something is wrong and I need to do something. But if your brain is, creates an emotion out of that, that's a solution to the problem. And maybe what you want to do is, so embarrassment or shame or anger or fear, these would all be solution. They would all be specific physical, like behavioral solutions to the problem of this, um, this body budgeting moment. And instead what you did was you stopped and you were curious. You went looking for more information um, in, before you came up with a solution. That's exactly, so you remember that your, your emotions are your brain's way of making sense of what's going on inside your body in relation to the world. Or you could say it's your brain's way of making sense of their affect, your feeling, um, these simple feelings in relation to what's going on around the world. And it's a solution. It's a proposed solution. Yeah. But sometimes, and sometimes that's good, right? Sometimes you, you want that automatic solution there and you need that. But sometimes you can just use the affect as a cue hmm. to stop and be curious and to try to gather more information so that you can figure out what the best solution will be in a way that you wouldn't have known before because you just automatically went with the prediction, you know, that your brain just automatically offered you. But you can, you can use feelings as a cue to, to stop and to be curious. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, that's really hard. <laughs> hard to do in the moment. But if you practice it, you can do it. You can absolutely do it. And it's very, I mean, it gives you not only a, a sense of control, but it's actually very satisfying because it gives you a completely different option to the one that, you know, you might have tried to hone over many years in, in yeah. other dimensions. And um, it, it has great body budgeting consequences for you because you won't be lying in bed that night going over in your mind, arguing with yourself and with the CEO and all of that arguing that you're doing with yourself has body budgeting costs for you. You, you may not be aware of that, but it mm. certainly does. And so you're just prolonging those body budgeting taxes in a sense. Um, when you like ruminate and go over, you know, you're arguing with someone in your head, you, you don't want to do that. That's really not how that's not, it's never really a good idea actually to do that. Lisa, could you tell us a little bit about, about your new book and why you're excited about it? Yes. My new book is called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's a set of little lessons, little essays. It's a very small book. Actually, I have a copy sitting here. Um, it's a little small book of seven and a half essays about the brain. Each essay, um, you know, gives you some tidbits uh, that are not very well known about brain function. And you can use these to um, delight your family and friends, um, uh, show them how uh, smart you are. Um, and, uh, and then these tidbits actually help you to think about human nature, different aspects of human nature um, in a gentle, inviting way. They don't really tell you what you know, they don't really give you an answer to the questions of human nature, but they do invite you to think about what kind of human you are and what kind of human you want to be. So it's a really small book. Um, 
that is full of big ideas. It's meant to be easily digestible. It was written for people who don't really think of themselves as uh, people who read um, popular science. Um, my husband calls it the first beach read, neuroscience beach read. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I did, I did write it for, you know, if you're um, in the bath at night or you're on lying on the beach or, you know, you're mm. um, taking the subway to work when we used to do that. Um, uh, you know, just these like small moments where you have a little bit of time. Um, they're written to be entertaining, but really thought provoking to sort of stay with you Um over longer than you, you know, after you've read them in, in thinking about, you know, how your brain works and how other people's um, brain wo brains work and, um, and what that means for your life. And it comes out in the spring. Am I right? Actually in the U S it comes out on November 17th. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Um, and in the UK, it comes out, I think on March 3rd or 4th, yeah. I think it's the release date. Why yeah. do we have to wait? I mean, that's not fair. I don't know. Well, apparently, you know, uh, it, in New Zealand and Australia, the, the UK version comes out in, uh, in November, along with the American, uh, the US version. So, Don't worry, yeah. John. I'll, I'll get a copy and read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> For like I did read the audio yeah. version this time, too. I read Oh, good. Well, version. that's good. I, I don't yeah. like it when other people let read. But uh, your other book was very long, so I, I guess that was... That was tough when you also, to do I was I was really untested, I think, at that point. You know, a lot of people, I mean, I think people hadn't heard my voice. They didn't know what I sounded like. And um, so this time they, they let me read my own book, which I was very happy about. Well, that's fantastic. Lisa, thank you. I could listen to you all day and then some. Your insights are incredible. Thank you so much for coming back and for sharing your wisdom and, and all your research with us. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Enjoy the rest of your day. Until next time, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs> <laughs>